0: All right. So part two of uh, Mormons or Latter-day Saints, as they will tell you to call them if you meet them. Uh, This is the fifth class for Discerning Deceptive Doctrines. Thank you guys for coming. I've got I got a few questions last week after class about what we're doing and coming up because they figured Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons were the obvious choices. So you know who else are we going to talk about. So Catholics is next. So next week, we're going to start on them. Uh, I know that that one is probably the most controversial on the list for a lot of people, because there's a lot of evangelicals that consider Catholics to be Christians. Uh, we're going to look really in-depth at the theology, uh, particularly around uh, salvation. And uh, it's very clear that they teach a gospel of works. Uh, in fact, if you teach a doctrine of salvation by grace alone, they say that you're cursed. And that you don't even get to go to heaven if you believe that—that's in their official doctrine. So uh, that will, yeah, we'll spend, we'll spend a whole whole uh, class on just that alone. I think, or at least pretty much a one. But the next the next week, we're going to talk about tradition and the papacy uh, versus scripture. Their claim to authority—they claim to have authority over scripture, right? They even have added books to the Bible that we don't have in our Bible because they say they have the authority to do it. Uh, where we disagree, obviously, that they don't have that authority. Only God has that authority. So, <clears throat> uh, Ephesians 2 and James 2 will be the week afterwards. Uh, that's just Ephesians 2 says it's salvation by grace alone, not by works. James 2 says it's by works and not by grace. So what does that mean? How to interpret that? Because Catholics love that verse. Uh, but if they really understood what it means, they wouldn't use it. <clears throat> and then uh, penance, purgatory, and indulgences, you can, that's something that has not gone away. That was what sparked the Reformation uh, with Martin Luther nailing his theses on the door. Uh, the fact that they just sell grace, like literally, they sell ways to get out of purgatory. Uh, you can still do this, do that to this day with them. Uh, and then we're going to spend, uh, I'm not, it's probably going to have to be two weeks because that looks like way too much to do over just one. So at least three, maybe four weeks on Catholics. uh, Talk about the mass, communion, priesthood, baptism, Mariology, sainthood, and then those apocryphal books so that they add to the Bible. Is there a question over here? No? Okay. Uh, And then after we finish up with Catholics, we're going to talk about progressive Christians, uh, what they really believe and how to confront it. Uh, That one's a big mystery to a lot of people. A lot of people know that they're not Christians or not really uh, but they don't really even know what it is that they really believe. So, and then Bethel Church, probably the next most controversial one on the list. Uh, if you're not familiar with them, the, they're led by a guy named Bill Johnson, and he's got a, a prophet, uh, Chris uh, Vol- Volaton or something like that. Uh, he teaches false gospel of sign and wonder, signs and wonders uh, that healing is for today. Uh, well, I mean it's. It's more than that, because Charismatics will say that as well. Uh, It's that healing is essential to the gospel, that if you're not being healed, you're not saved. Okay, That's what he teaches. Uh, One of the ironic things about that, too, is his wife just died of cancer like two months ago, and he has a son who's deaf. So um, his his, his own family doesn't even... uh, like reflect his theology, unless he wants to say that his family isn't saved, uh, which he does not want to say. Uh, they spread their gospel through music. Um, so this is—I don't consider them to be a part of the Pentecostal movement. I consider them to be a false breakaway of the Charismatic movement. I'm not as harsh on them as someone like, uh, <clears throat> oh, out in California. I can't think of his name right now. Huh? John MacArthur. John MacArthur, thank you, John MacArthur. Well, he doesn't think any charismatics are saved. Uh, I don't, I think that takes it too far. That's just my personal opinion. We'll talk about it a little bit during that week. Uh, but uh, but I don't think that Bill Johnson's branch, which is influencing millions of people all over the world, tens of millions, uh, in fact, I've, you're probably influenced by it, and you don't realize it. when you turn on your radio, you'll probably hear some of their songs, so... <clears throat> Anyway, so that's what's upcoming. Any questions about that or It'd sound interesting enough for you guys to ask, keep coming? Hopefully. So let's get into uh, Mormonism again. This is how to answer, answer their beliefs biblically. Uh, right up front, as a reminder of what we covered last week, there is a language barrier right, that you're going to have to overcome when talking with a Mormon. Uh, They have their own language, in a manner of speaking. It has all the same words that we have in English, uh, but they're loaded with completely different meanings. So if you remember from last week, I gave you an analogy where I went to Target, bottle, bottle of uh, uh, shampoo or body wash, and then got home and it was filled with water uh, because someone had stolen the soap out of it and put something else in in it. So that's what Mormons do. They take the word like the Trinity or the Godhead. uh, The Christian belief, the thing that's supposed to be in the bottle is three persons, one God. Uh, but what they said, they'll use that exact same word, but they've stolen that definition out and they've put in the water, which is just three gods who are one in purpose. So they're polytheists. Uh, they use the word scripture, which to us just means the Bible. Uh, but to them, to it means the Bible as it is translated properly. They will always add that on there, uh, which is a misnomer. You can, they're tra- your tra- are. Uh, these red tag doctrines are not dependent upon any translation. You can go to the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, KJV, et cetera, and get the exact same doctrines from them. There's just, there's no textual variants at all that affect any of these doctrines. So it's just, it's a false thing that they throw up to trip you up. So, uh, but then they also include in that the book of Mormon, uh, which was supposedly translated from gold plates, uh, the doctrine of covenants those are revelations that Joseph Smith says he got from God and then the pearl of great price which is just smattering of other writings that he had including some other false translations things that he just made up whole cloth so when they say they believe in scripture you got to understand that they have a larger body of scripture than what you're talking about and the bible is diminished in that as well so salvation Jesus paid for our sins uh, that's what Christians believe. That's what the Bible teaches. But what they mean is that Jesus paid for Adam's sin only. That's it. Everything else depends on you. Uh, when when they say God the Father, we mean God Almighty, Eternal, Invisible. Uh, to them, He's an exalted man who became a God and has a physical body himself, flesh and bone. He has a wife, etc. So I mean, and we could go through every everything. Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit. Like, they have different definitions for everything. So it's every time that you, when they say something, when you're having a conversation, you need to ask them to clarify it, what they mean. So that way you can actually get to the heart of the matter between them. All right, so I'll refresher the apostate church. This is a Mormon, these are claims that uh, Joseph Smith makes, that he got these from angels and other revelations from God, supposedly in his bedroom and at various points in time. Uh, he says that the church went totally apostate after the death of the apostles. Uh, that the proper church organization was lost along with the true gospel at this time. And what do they mean by that? They mean that ironic and Melchizedekian priesthoods were lost. And we're going to explain what that Melchizedekian priesthood was in a little bit, or what it is. Uh, and they believe that they lost prophetic revelation from God as well, which he claims to have restored. Joseph Smith is the one who restored it, including in the ordinances and these priesthoods, all right? But that is not what the Bible says about the church at all. Uh, In fact, it speaks of a church that's going to be maturing and growing throughout history. Uh, For example, Jesus, right at the end of the book of Matthew, there is no talk of preparing for the church going apostate. It says, behold, I am with you always to to the very end of the age. Uh, this promise is broken if the church went apostate at any point in time in history at all, especially after the the apostles. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians, "To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever." Amen. Okay, Paul, it's 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 a promise for all generations that the church is going to be there. Uh, Paul speaks of the church maturing. The verses are too long for me to include here, but if you want to look them up, Ephesians 3, 11 through 16, and also 4, 11 through 16, that's not a typo. I had to make sure that's the exact same verse numbers there, just a different chapter. Uh, well, just I included one, one segment of verse 16 there. It says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He's just talking about how God gave the church offices. He gave, like, so that the body can come together and it can work and it can grow and it's being built up, right? This is just an ongoing thing that's God sustaining the church through appointing people to be various parts of the body. It's something that's going to be ongoing. All right, the church, uh, Paul also says in Ephesians, Ephesians, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. What that means, it's... He's referring to their teachings. So himself, Peter, John, Matthew. uh, And we have their teachings recorded in the New Testament. Okay. So we don't need to wonder what they taught, what it was that they taught. Because we have exactly what was written down in the Bible. That's what the New Testament is, including the Gospels. Uh, Jesus also promised that his church would never be overcome. Uh, He said in Matthew chapter 16, talking to Peter. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, we're going to talk about the Catholic and evangelical interpretation of that next week. when we talk about the claim of authority, because uh, Peter in Greek is Petros, which is the word for rock. Uh, so Catholics want to say that that means that Peter is the foundation of the church. And that's the Pope is the heir of Peter going back. Uh, but that's that's not what that verse means. But we'll talk about it next week for now, just know Jesus promised that hell would never overcome the church. So there was no period in which the church wasn't present here on the earth. There's also no promised restoration of the church anywhere in Scripture at all. Uh, This is a verse that they use. I quoted it last time from Acts 3, uh, that the heaven must receive, right, until the time for restoring all things. And they say that this is the church. Uh, but the church is not what's actually being restored here. It's not what it says. It says that all things will be restored. Okay? Uh, and he's referring to what is what the holy prophets have been prophesying. The prophets did not. You didn't have thousands of years of prophets prophesying that the church was going to go apostate right after the Messiah. Okay? That would be really a really big letdown, wouldn't it? Uh, no, they're prophesying a, uh, a new heaven and a new earth. The time when God's going to reign over the earth forever, okay? Uh, And that Peter, who wrote, who's the one who uh, said what was recorded in Acts three, there said in his own letter, "But according to the promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells." That's what Peter is talking about. It's not a restoration of the church; Uh, it's it's the restoring of everything. We're going to be living on a new earth in which heaven and earth and God's ruling over us. Uh, that's that's what we have to look forward to. We don't We're not looking forward to a church that's been that, that was fallen and coming back. So what about the Melchizedekian priesthood? Um, this is something that a lot of people probably have never even heard of. Uh, but it is it is legitimate. It is in the Bible. It's just not what they say it is. So they get this from Psalm 110 verse four, where it says the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, this is the most quoted Psalm in the entire New Testament. It's quoted like 10 or 12 times. Uh, it's a messianic Psalm. It's all about Jesus. They go to it time and time again. Jesus himself quoted this Psalm uh, to trip up the uh, Pharisees. When, like, Whose son is he when David calls him Lord? Uh, it's the same one, Psalm Psalm 110. Uh, this verse has nothing to do with ordinary humans who become priests. OK, and I know this for a fact because the book of Hebrews has like five or six chapters dedicated to explaining this verse of scripture right here. Uh, so if you want to have a good time, go on and check out Hebrews. It's a great book, one of my favorites. But right here, Hebrews five, five through six. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Only one person in the New Testament was ever ordained as a priest. Only one. And it was Jesus. That's it. There are no other priests. In a sense, we're all priests. We're all kings uh, because we're all uh, brought into that through Christ. Uh, but the function of a priest is to be an intermediary intermediary, it's easy to say, intermediary between us and God. That's the purpose of a priest. Uh, but we don't need that anymore because Jesus is our high priest. He's the one who does it for us on our behalf, gives us direct access to God. Uh, and it's just it's a better priesthood. Uh, it's the Aaronic priests. They could not last forever because they died. Right. You get only so many years out of them, and either they were forced to retire because of old age or they just died. And, and Hebrews explains this in chapter 7. Uh, they can't do it. So Jesus, he can be the high priest forever because he has an indestructible life. That's also in Hebrews 7. Uh, he can continue forever. The Aaronic priesthood is said to be obsolete. Again, the writer of Hebrews said that the priesthood was set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. All right, He's pretty harsh on the, uh, the Old Testament there. And the priesthood, and he says that a new priesthood was introduced as a better hope through which we draw near to God. The Aaronic priesthood was exchanged for Jesus's new priesthood, and it was named after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, and why is it called named after the order of Melchizedek? It's um, it's not like named after like him per se. Um, let's see how do I put it. Anyways, yeah, it was, it's it's named after a guy who was a priest. So it's not that Melchizedek is greater than who Jesus is. It's just named that because he was the priest who modeled this type of priesthood in the Old Testament. So um, it's it's just because he held, he's the guy who held this type of priesthood. Uh, and how do we know that as well? Oh, yeah, the high priest of Melchizedek, you've probably never heard of it. No. There you go. <clears throat> There's your meme for the night. Uh, so, who is Melchizedek? How do we know? Why is it named after him? What's the importance of him? Uh, if you go back to Genesis 14, that's where you get the story of Melchizedek. Um, it's just like one or two paragraphs long. Um, so, uh, who was he? So, he was a, he was a real man, real person in Canaan who was at who was there at the same time as Abraham. He was not a Christophany. There are people who think that he was Jesus on Earth. Before he became incarnate, it's not the case. He was an actual man, just like me and you. Uh, Some details about him. He was the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. He was a priest for God. It says very specifically that he was a priest for Yahweh. And Abraham tithed to him. Okay, So Abraham, who was the one who received the promises, paid a tithe to this man. That's how great he was at the time. Uh, And he also ate bread and he ate wine with Abraham. Okay, and Hebrew says that this man resembled the son of God. And how did he do that? Well, if you know Hebrew, Melchizedek, if you translate his name into English, it means king of righteousness. That's his name. And he's also a king of the city called Salem, which is which means that he is the king of peace as well. So he's the king of peace, the king of righteousness. Uh, his genealogy was not given, okay? There are people who look at what this says in Hebrews and they make all kinds of cults around it as well, weird weird beliefs, because it says he was uh, without uh, beginning or end of days. It doesn't mean that he never died, okay? That's, people interpret it that way. It means that we weren't told where he came from or what happened to him, like how did he die and when did he die? So he, we're not given a genealogy. He just pops up uh, and he's a priest and he's a king, this these details are intentionally left out, according to the author of Hebrews, because uh, it's meant to represent that Jesus was eternal. So we don't have a beginning and end date of Melchizedek, even though we had one because it's he, God is trying to make a point about this priesthood. Uh, Abraham tithed to them because he's the greater person. So he's tithing to him. It's like he's tithing to God, to Jesus himself. Uh, Levi it says very specifically in Hebrews as well, Levi even tithed this man through Abraham because Levi was still in Abraham, had not been born yet, all right? Uh, which means a Levitical priests, including Aaron, all tithed him through, through Abraham. So the Aaronic priesthood is inferior to the Melchizedekian one, just by virtue of the fact that they had tithed to this man. And they're the ones who received tithes from Israel. Uh, he also broke bread and had wine with Abraham. Bread and wine has been a symbol for God's plan of salvation, going all the way back to Genesis, for six thousand some years, or I guess four thousand, or however long it's been since uh, Abraham, it's 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 that it goes that far back. God was planning all of this out. Okay, it's actually really fascinating. So, that's Melchizedek, cool guy. Uh, a lot of bad theology surrounding him. You just got to read Hebrews. All right, angelic visits. So Joseph Smith claimed to have angelic visits. Uh, and, and part of that is that he's promising that uh, when he received the angel from his angel Moroni, that he was promised he was going to be the one to restore the church. And they quote this verse literally to prove it. Uh, but they stopped reading the verse halfway through because the second half of the verse disproves it. So we're going to read it. Uh, I said, Paul is writing, I am astonished That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. They stop reading right there when they're quoting it to you and they'll say the church was going apostate. Paul said it was. But if you uh, continue reading, it says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. So in case you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to say it again. If anyone preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's Galatians 1, 6 through 9. So even if an angel appears and says, I've got a different gospel, right? Even if this actually happened, I don't believe that he was actually visited by an angel. I don't. Uh, I think he just made it up. But let's just give him the benefit of the doubt and say one did. Uh, he should have said, "You're a cursed being. I want nothing to do with you," and rejected what he said. That's what he should have said if he was going to be biblical about it. But instead, he he didn't. Uh, and what was the gospel that was preached to him? Well, Paul explains in the next chapter. Uh, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's Galatians 2.16. Uh, and they preach and teach that you need to follow the law to be saved. It's just right there in the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, it's, what they, it's what you're going to hear if you go to a Mormon uh, service. But they have a different gospel. Okay? And the verse that they, uh, that they use to prove that they have the restored church actually proves the opposite. If you just finish the rest of the sentence. All right. Trinity review. Just go over this really quickly. We went over it in depth for Jehovah's Witnesses. So if you missed that, uh, we spend like five or ten minutes on it there. Uh, So you can go back and look at and listen to that. But basically, it's one in essence, three in person. So one God, three persons. The Father is God, according to 1 Peter 1-2. Jesus is God, according to Hebrews 1-8. The Holy Spirit is God, according to Acts 5-3-4. And there are a lot more verses on that that prove it. We're just trying to be uh, concise here. All three share attributes that only God has, such as eternality, omniscience, omnipotence, etc., holiness. Uh, but God is also said to be one, Deuteronomy 6-4. So there's that diagram again. The Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, is not the Father, but all three are God. That's the Trinity. They teach that there are three persons, okay? And the first person that they consider to be in the Trinity, the most preeminent one, is God the Father. Uh, But the Bible is quite clear all throughout from Genesis to Revelation that God the Father is not a man. Uh, He says it over and over and over again. There's like 20 verses uh, where he specifically says, I'm not a man. Uh, Here's a few of them. from Hosea chapter 11, for I am God and not a man. Pretty straightforward. Uh, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. That's from the book of uh, Numbers. Uh, And then we go to the New Testament, Romans chapter one, claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Okay, so God is not a man. He's an eternal being. Uh, He does not have flesh and bone, okay? He's a spirit. It says this over and over and over again as well. It says to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's 1 Timothy. Uh, Because remember, Mormons also believe in billions of gods because each and every single one of them, they believe, can be a God. There have been other universes in which people become gods, and then they can spawn billions of new universes that have gods. Like, they have more gods than the Hindus have in their in their uh, theology. It's really out of whack. Uh, Colossians 1:15 says that he, referencing Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he's a spirit. He's not visible to us. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You can't see God because he's invisible. He's a spirit. Uh, the Book of Mormon actually agrees with the Bible on this. Uh, so it says in Book of Alma, chapter 22, that Aaron said unto him, Yeah, he is that great spirit, and, the, and he created all things both in heaven and in earth. Believest thou this? Uh, it's written in King James-style English, the whole Book of Mormon. So if you can't read King james uh, English, you're going to struggle with the Book of Mormon. Uh, and then also in the same book, third, chapter 31, Holy, holy God, we believe that thou art God, and we believe that thou art holy, and that thou wast a spirit, that that thou art a spirit, and that thou wilt be a spirit forever. And You know, if you actually read through the Book of Mormon, it's theologically not as bad as Mormon theology actually is. Uh, In some regards, it's because their theology changed over time. And the Doctrine of Covenants is actually where the bulk of their really bad teaching comes from. Uh, But I'm not endorsing the Book of Mormon. It's still bad. It's got a lot of bad stuff in it. So Uh, but be careful if you quote these verses to them. You're not doing so because the Book of Mormon is authoritative on the issue because it's not. Okay. the point of using the Book of Mormon on this is to show how it contradicts their theology. That it contradicts what they believe and what the doctrine of covenants, etc. you're doing it to invalidate both of their works, not, not to establish it as an authority that you, they can look to, okay? So be careful about, about using it. Now the Father is eternal, because remember, they say that he had a beginning. He was born as a human on some other planet similar to earth, that uh, he still has a flesh and body to this day. So he has a beginning, and you now he's going to last forever, But that's not what the Bible says at all. Jeremiah 10.10 calls him the everlasting king. Psalm 92 says that God is from everlasting. Okay, Just everlasting is how the ESV translates the word for eternity uh, pretty consistently through all the the Old Testament. Uh, He's called the everlasting God or the eternal God in Genesis 21. David said that God was from eternity to eternity, from everlasting to everlasting. That's in 1 Chronicles. God himself says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. He's the only one. There are no billions and billions and billions of other gods out there. He's the only one who's ever existed and will ever exist. You can look back as far as you possibly can and God exists. Look forward into the future as far as you can possibly do and God exists forever. There's no beginning. There's no end to him. Uh, The Book of Mormon actually agrees with this again. Uh, It says in the book of Moroni, which is the last book of their book, of their Bible, that says, for I know that God is not a partial God, neither a changeable being, but he is unchangeable from all eternity to all eternity. Uh, The immutability of God is an attribute, uh, which means that he never changes. It's impossible for him to change. uh, And that the book of Mormon agrees with that. But their theology says that God does change and because he's a man. Right? He's just exalted to a really high and lofty position. Uh, Genesis uh, 1, 26, this is uh, a verse that they proved to say that God, the Father, does have a body because it says that Adam was made in the image of God, uh, and therefore Adam was a physical person, therefore God must be a physical person. Right? Impeccable logic, uh, not so fast. Uh, it does not mean that God a physical body. Uh, it means that we were created to reflect His rational nature, His moral nature, and His dominion. Okay, and there's probably more than three. This is just three that I'm going to cover today. Uh, so you look at Colossians chapter one. It says, "Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put and put and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator." So it's connecting your mind and what you know to the image of the creator, uh, to put off your old, this is uh, going to Ephesians now, it says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So it's his moral nature that we're made in his image as well that we're supposed to take after and then we're also supposed to have dominion. Just going right back to that verse that they quote, Genesis 126, God said to them, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And what does that mean? Let them have dominion over the earth. It's simple as that. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we're exactly like God in every way. It's, there are specific ways in which we're made after his image, right? Like we have a mind, we have dominion, and we have uh, a morality, right? Like, that's a conscience that comes from being made in the image of God. It's something that animals don't have, right, that we do. Uh, the other verse that they use frequently is Exodus thirty-three eleven, where it says that Moses spake with, spoke with God face to face. It doesn't literally mean he looked at his God's face and that God was looking at his face. It's just a metaphor for intimacy. Okay? A blind person can speak to face to face with somebody, and never see their face, right, because they're blind. Uh, It means that they had a close conversation together, right? Psalm 81, 4 says that God will cover you with feathers for protection. Uh, Is God a giant bird creature, and does it mean he'll literally cover you with his wings? It doesn't mean that. It's just a metaphor, okay? It's the same thing. Uh, The Bible is abundantly clear. We already looked at the scriptures that God is a spirit. And then Jesus himself in Luke 24, he also says it at the end of John, uh, that spirits do not have flesh and bones. Spirits do not have flesh and bones. He just outright says it. Uh, <clears throat> so he doesn't. God just doesn't. It's impossible for him to have it. Uh, the father we're talking about. Uh, Mormon Jesus. So this is the second part of the Trinity. This is the reminder of what they claim, that he's the firstborn spirit child of God. So he is a creation of God through like physical relations with his wife. So and there's debate in Mormon circles as to whether God has more than one wife or not, Uh, because there are some sections of Mormonism that still to this day teach that you can't be exalted to Godhood unless you are polygamous, right? Unless you have more than one wife. And they don't necessarily mean like like here, you have to be married eternally, because there actually are denominations of Mormonism as well. There's like three or four of them. Uh, the one that we've been talking about is the biggest one out of Utah, but there are a few of them scattered around that are really small that still practice polygamy, uh, both physical and eternally. Uh, so side note, back to the main point. Uh, they believe that Jesus became a God himself through obedience and devotion to truth. He, on, he His death only paid the penalty for Adam's sin. Yahweh in the Bible is Jesus, but Elohim is God the Father. Okay, Yahweh is the name of God, uh, as we talked about the Jehovah's Witnesses. Elohim is just the Hebrew word for God. Just what it, it just means God. Uh, so when they say when it says God, it's talking about God the Father. When it says Yahweh, it means Jesus. That's what they say. Uh, Jesus should not be worshipped or prayed to. They're pretty clear about that. They only pray to God the Father. This is how they get away with saying they're monotheists. Okay, that's another word that they embed a different meaning into. They, they think monotheism means, oh, we only worship one God. Uh, but uh, that's, I mean, they do only worship one, but they believe in, mal, in many. So go ahead. You were trying to answer those texts where it say, like, Yahweh our Elohim, like Yahweh our God, is what it says. So between re- naming Yahweh as Elohim. Well, that's what we're going to talk about. So <laughs> that, those verses, uh, well, okay, where is that at? coming up. There it is. So Yahweh and Elohim are the same because there are verses that equate them. So they they won't acknowledge those verses. They say uh, it's a mistranslation of the Bible. But it's, it's just not. It's not the case. Uh, so uh, and then the last point is that Jesus is our, sister, our elder brother. So he's not unique from me and you at all. He's just, he's just unique in the fact that he's the first one. So good for him. Uh, and he's the spirit brother to Satan, and so are we, by the way. So we're all siblings of Satan and Jesus. One great, big, happy family that we all are. Uh, but what does the Bible actually say in regards to these? Uh, it says that Jesus is eternal, not created. Okay, we covered this really extensively with Jehovah's Witness, so I'm going to try to move fast. Uh But it says right there in John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. This is all talking about Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not made anything that was made. Okay, so a lot of people want to say like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons included. They want to say that God created Jesus. So he was the first spirit child of God. And then Jesus created everything else. That's how they're trying to get around the fact that Jesus is God and has always been God. Uh, but that's just not what the Bible says. Right. It says that nothing was made that was made. Right. Apart from him. So he, he didn't create himself. Right. That's impossible. And then even they won't acknowledge that he created himself. They say that he was created, but he can't have created himself if he didn't exist. So it's just a logical contradiction. Uh, feel free to point it out to him. And try to get them to explain it. Uh, they will not be able to. <clears throat> uh, Hebrews, back to Hebrews again, chapter 1. He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is back to that uh, the Trinity where he's one in essence with God the Father. There are people who say that's just some, some made-up philosophical language that the Bible never uses. That's actually not true. Uh, it, he's the exact imprint of his nature. It just says it right there in the Bible. So all, everything that God is, Jesus is. He's the exact image of it. okay? He upholds the universe by, uh, by the word of His power. Uh, Colossians 1:17, He is before all things and in him all things hold together. So he's before everything. okay It just means that he's always existed. That's what that means. Uh, they're going to say he's the firstborn of God. You can't get away from that. That's what it, the scripture says. Paul said he's the firstborn. Uh firstborn, it's it's a title, okay, that you hold. Uh, it's not it doesn't it's not like a literal that he was born, okay? Uh, it's it's not so it's not it's meant to convey that he was literally born. It's meant to convey his position over creation. So Jesus is positionally preeminent over everything. I don't know if positionally is a word, but we're going with it. So that's what it is. Uh, and to demonstrate this, David, is said in Psalm 89, verse 27, to be the firstborn of the kings of the earth. Was he the firstborn king on the earth? He definitely wasn't, okay? He wasn't even the first king of Israel, right? He was the second one. Uh, He was also the youngest child in his family. yet has said that he's the firstborn, okay? And he's also the king of the smallest, like one of the smallest countries on earth, right? Was Israel, still is to this day. Uh, And he's the firstborn of all the kings because... He is greater than everybody else. That's what it means. Uh, and just to clarify that in Colossians, to back it up, immediately after saying right that uh, that he is the one who he's the first one of a creation, verse seven or verse sixteen says that he created all things and he's over all things. So he's explained what he means by that. Okay, just right in the next verse. Uh, so remember that exercise we did with. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, where you had to draw the boxes, and then you write all things that were created, and you had to put the coin, where does Jesus belong? Uh, you can do the exact same thing with the Mormons, because they want to say he was created first, and then he created everything else, but it's the exact same problem. It's a logical and fallacy, or logical fallacy uh, and contradiction. So does that make sense? I know I'm talking fast, so... Uh, Yahweh and Elohim are the same person. Uh, Here's two verses to prove it, but there are many more that you could uh, go to. So going back to Isaiah 40, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, which the Hebrew word there is Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, Elohim. Okay, It's the same person. So we're making... We're making a way for God and a highway, or for Yahweh and a highway for our God. So it's it's drawing an equivalence between the two they're the same person. Okay, This uh, exact verse was quoted in Mark 1 and John 1 to be speaking of John the Baptist as the one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of Jesus, who is said to be God and Yahweh at the exact same time. So it's a divinity of Christ passage. Uh, it's also uh, something you can use to dispel... Right, false doctrine uh, with the Mormons. So uh, the exact same thing, also in Isaiah uh, chapter nine, for to us a child is born. You're going to hear this verse quoted a lot more in the next month or two. Uh, To us a son is given and the government shall be on his shoulders. This is clearly about Jesus. Nobody disagrees about it. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The word there is Elohim in the Hebrew. So Jesus is said very specifically to be God, Elohim, uh, Everlasting Father, so he's eternal right there as well, and the Prince of Peace. So, great verse to go to to, to show them that. Jesus also rightfully accepted worship all the time throughout the uh, New Testament. We just went through the book of Matthew, basically, and picked out all the times where he's worshipped. Uh, I took out one from John, and, or two from John, and then one from Hebrews but uh, you can just go through any of, the, any of the Gospels and pick out a dozen times where Jesus accepts worship. So from Thomas, he accepts worship from angels. He accepts worship from the wise men who come to see him when he's born. He accepts worship from a leper that he healed, a ruler, uh, a blind man, anonymous woman, Mary and Mary. So yeah, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. So I think what this says there in Matthew 28. Uh, and then the disciples themselves also worship God. And remember Thomas himself, uh, that's John 20 said, my Lord and my God, and worshiped him right there. And Jesus did not rebuke him. Uh, John, who recorded those events, gets rebuked in the book of Revelation. When he falls down to worship an angel, he's like, uh-uh, I'm not going to accept that worship because you shouldn't be worshiping me. I'm not God. So, but he has no rebuke for Thomas here in worshiping him. So it's okay to worship Jesus, to give praise to Him, and to pray to Him. In fact, it's good that you do so. Uh, Jesus is not an angel, okay? So He's not just a spirit person, okay? But Satan is, but Jesus is not. So they are not—they are not brothers, okay? Jesus is not an angel. We covered this as well with the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Book of Hebrews. It's a great Christological book. It really shores up uh, a lot of questions people have about the nature of Christ Uh, for to which of the angels did God ever say you are my son today I've begotten you or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So he's saying God says one thing about the angels. He says another thing about Jesus. Okay. So of the angels, he says, Hebrews one, seven, then Hebrews one, eight, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God is forever and ever. So Jesus or God calls Jesus, God, and then says you're eternal. You have an eternal throne that always exists. So it's uh, back to the eternality of Jesus and the fact that he's God and he's not an angel. He's always existed. Uh, in fact, Jesus created Satan. OK, so uh, it was it's not not that the brothers Jesus is clearly above Satan in the hierarchy here. He's a created being. Uh, in fact, Satan is an angel. He's more specifically a cherub, which is just a type of angelic being. Uh, don't have time to go into angelology today. Uh, but if you just check out Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19, Matthew 25, 41, Revelation 12, 7, they all uh, peg Satan as a type of angel. Uh, Jesus created everything. That includes the angelic beings. Uh, you can't create your brother, you know. And by the way, Satan's not our brother either. That's good to know. Uh, Jesus died for each of our sins, not just for the sin of Adam. It says this over and over and over again. Here are three. Uh, It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, being Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That's a prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah 53. I uh, go on to the New Testament. The next day, he, being John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who, take away, who takes away the sin of the world. Okay? That's not just the sin of Adam. It's a sin, everybody's sin. And then First 1 John, uh, John writes, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He didn't just die because of one sin. Died because of the multitude of sins that we all have committed, are committing, will commit. All, all, everybody who accepts faith in Christ. Uh, this is not meant to be open up a discussion as well onto the uh, the extent of Jesus' atonement. Okay, whether it was limited or unlimited. That's a question that uh, that Calvinists and Arminians have been arguing over for a long time. Right now, we're not getting into that tonight. This is just meant to be a response to Mormon claims of that Jesus only died for one sin. That's it. One sin. But that's just not the case at all. Remember, this is the Mormon plan of salvation. Uh, Just real quickly, we're going to get to talk about heaven and what that actually is like. Uh, That there's a premortal existence. So all of us were once spirits and we were good enough in the spirit world that we were sent to the earth and we were passed through the veil of forgetfulness. So we forgot who we were as a spirit. We're given free will. And this is where we're tested to see if our spirits really want to desire righteousness. Uh, and if basically you you follow, if you do follow the law, you live a good life, you're baptized as a Mormon, you go through the uh, endowment process, you get ma- have an eternal marriage, et cetera, you're good. Uh, you go to paradise in the spirit world when you die. Your body goes into the grave. Uh, if you were bad, you go to spirit prison. While in spirit prison, you can be evangelized by Mormon spirits and get moved up to paradise, according to them. Uh, and then the resurrection can happen. That's what Jesus allowed. Okay, The sin of Adam meant that nobody could be resurrected. So Jesus died to pay for the sin. So hooray, now we can all be resurrected at the final judgment when Jesus comes back to the earth. And then you go to three kingdoms. If you're really good go to the celestial kingdom where you can become uh, a god or you go to the terrestrial kingdom which is the middle of the road path or you go to the telestial kingdom which is where it's fine but it's not it's not the greatest you know so uh, you're distant from god etc and if you're really bad if you knew what mormonism really teaches before you died and you rejected it you go to hell which they call outer darkness is there a question no all right um <clears throat> So that was just real quick. And these are the verses that they use to quote or use to prove this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 40 to42, we're going to read it again and then uh, explain why it doesn't mean what they say it means. okay? It says, "Not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish, and there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. Uh, So they want to say that because there's different, they say there's different glories to the resurrection of the dead. Okay, But that's a misinterpretation of the verse. Uh, first thing I want to point out is that there's only two kingdoms mentioned here. Okay? There's heavenly, which is celestial. Ooh, going back to this. So that's the celestial kingdom. There's earthly, which is terrestrial kingdom. Okay? These are Latin words. So celestial just means heavenly. And then terrestrial is earthly. That's just what it means in Latin. Uh, there is no terrestrial kingdom mentioned here at all. In fact, telestial is a made up word. Nobody knows what it means. uh, Because it's Latin, Latin, and then they added a Greek word with a Latin ending. It it doesn't mean anything at all. Uh, So, uh, it's just, yeah. Look it up, they're like, I don't know what it means. It's just something that Mormon, that uh, Joseph Smith came up with. So, there's only two here, right? The glory of the heavenly and the glory of the earthly. There's no three kingdoms, right? But a... uh, an astute Mormon might point out, ah, but it says there's a glory of the sun, a glory of the moon, and a glory of the stars. So there's three there again. Uh, but that's, again, it's not what he's talking about, right? He's, he's comparing and contrasting, saying that there is earthly flesh, example, animals, birds, and fish. And then there's heavenly, uh, uh, that's the word I'm looking for, heavenly bodies, such as sun, moon, and stars. So he's just giving an example of the two kinds here as well. So it's, a, it's, it's two lists right next to each other to, to explain what he meant, meant by the two previous things that he said. That's it. So there's only two. Uh, you, so you cannot get three kingdoms out of this, right? Only two. <clears throat> and uh, basically what this really means, he's just comparing, like, because the, the, the Corinthians had asked a question What does it mean, the resurrection of the dead? So the entirety of chapter 15 is dedicated to him answering that question. Uh, And he's saying, your body right now, it's like earthly, earthly bodies. Okay. But your resurrected body, it's going to be glorious, like the stars in the sky. It's going to be so much better and so much bigger and more magnificent than what you're experiencing now. So he's, he's just drawing a comparison of what our bodies are going to be like at the resurrection of the dead. So... It's just lesser glory, greater glory. That's it. So that's all it means. Uh, and it's actually, it's a wonderful verse. Uh, it's too bad that they have distorted it so badly. So the other verse that they say is in 2 Corinthians, or that they quote, uh, where Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. Now it's possible that Paul's actually talking about himself here. And he's just trying to, you know, play it off like, oh, I, I know a guy. <laughs> you know. Um, so, but I don't know whether maybe he did know somebody else and it wasn't him. Uh, but it still doesn't mean what they want to say it means. It doesn't mean that there are three kinds of heavens and somebody went to the celestial kingdom. OK, if you go and look throughout the Bible and page through it, there are three kinds of heavens that are outlined just periodically throughout uh, the Bible. The first heaven is just the sky. It's where the clouds are, it's where the birds fly through. Uh, Deuteronomy 11:11 11, 11 is an example of this. This is but the land that you're going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven. So it's just where the clouds are. That's called the first heaven in the Bible. Then there's the second heaven, which is outer space. It's just where the stars are, the planets, etc. God said, "Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, so that's the stars. Uh, to separate the day from the night, or sorry, that's the sun and the moon, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. So that's, that's what that is. And then there's a third heaven, which is God's kingdom. Uh, an example, Psalm 11. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so it's, it's where we go when we die, if you believe in Jesus. It's where believers go to heaven, to be with God, okay? It's not a celestial kingdom. And by the way, even even now, Mormons still don't believe that anybody is in the celestial kingdom because Jesus hasn't returned yet. That doesn't happen until Jesus returns. So they're all still in the spirit world, whether you're in paradise or not, or in punishment. Uh, And so how can somebody have gone to a place that is not even accessible yet, so it's just a contradiction that you can point out to him. Uh, this is really important to point out to him as well. Uh, the original lie in the garden is that Jesus or that, uh, sorry, not Jesus, that Satan tempted Eve with was you will be like God if you eat this forbidden fruit. It's literally the original sin. It's what Mormonism, Mormonism is like built upon. Uh, The desire to become like God is also the very thing that caused Satan to fall himself. That's outlined in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19, Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, where he says, I will ascend and be like the most high. Okay, So that was his original sin himself. Uh, And he took that exact same temptation, brought it to us, and that caused our fall. Uh, Mormon teaching is doubling down on the original sin that set the stage for humanity for the past 6,000 years. That's just what it is. It's a doubling down on sin. Feel free to point it out to them. It might save them. <clears throat> heaven and hell, uh, there are only heaven and hell two options. There are two categories of people when they when you die. There are believers, which Jesus uh, in he tells a parable about this in Matthew 13, Uh, about the parable of the wheats and the tares. I didn't didn't put it up up there for time, but please go ahead and read it yourselves on your own time. Uh, But he says that God sowed a field of wheat, and then an enemy came and sowed sowed tares. And tares are a plant that looks like wheat as it's growing, but it's not wheat. It's it's a bad plant. Uh, And then at the end of the age, it says that the wheat is going to be harvested and put into the barn. The barn is a parable. It means heaven uh, it's, or symbolically for heaven. And then the tariffs are burned. That's symbolic for hell. So pretty clear there. Only two categories, wheats and tares. It's not that everything was collected and put into three different barns. So right, you got like a barn that's like a palace. You got a normal barn and then you got a dilapidated barn. That's not what it is. It's one barn and the rest are burned. Okay, there's a very stark difference there. Uh, again, Ma- later on in Matthew, chapter 25, Jesus uh, shares a parable of the sheep and the goats. And how at the end of the age, that Jesus is going to be like a the good shepherd. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep are believers. It says that they're going to go to paradise and that the goats are going to hell to be punished forever. Okay, it's only two categories. So it's heaven or hell. That's it. The horror of hell, okay, it's, it's nothing to joke about. Uh, it's a real place of torment that lasts for eternity and there are no second chances. So the Mormons think that when you die, even if you died not believing in Mormonism, that you have a chance of moving up, okay? You can get out of a place of torment by believing in the Mormon gospel, okay, and receiving baptism that a family member did on your behalf. Uh, but that's just not what the Bible says at all. Okay? It's, it's done deal. Once you're assigned to a place, it's forever. Biblical descriptions of hell, fire, fiery furnace, unquenchable fire, the lake of burning sulfur, lake of fire, everlasting contempt, perdition, darkness, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal punishment, the wrath to come, damnation, condemnation, retribution, woe, and the second death. None of those are good and pleasant things, and there's no escaping from any of them. Okay, I hope that that motivates you uh, to share that, share the gospel with them when they come knock on your door, and not to just insult them and turn them away. Right? Like, don't laugh at them and say you wear silly underwear. Get off my door. Okay, that's you're sending them away, and you could have had the option to uh, to witness to them, and maybe they would have come to Christ. All right. And some of you are looking at me like, what do you mean by funny underwear? Don't worry about it. They wear they wear special underwear, so. Um, And regarding that, too, the baptism of the dead, so they believe that, so they keep They're very good at keeping the genealogical records of family members, of all kinds of different people, because they think that you can, they can baptize you after you're dead. And the verse that they go to quote this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29, says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay, that's what Paul said. Uh, it seems really confusing. Uh, it's right in the middle of a discussion on, what the, re- on the resurrection of the body, what that means. Uh, he is not, Paul is not just like highlighting what Christians should do. He's also not even saying that Christians are doing it. Okay, uh, if you back up to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's specifically addressing a group of people who deny that the resurrection occurred. OK, that's the context. Uh, and he's just throwing out an argument against them, saying they say that the resurrection of the dead doesn't even occur. And yet they baptize people who are dead on their behalf. So they're doing something that contradicts what they say they believe. So he's like he's just making an argument like like he's saying that they're being stupid about what they're doing. Okay, so he's not prescribing something that we should be doing at all. So any questions about that? I'm good. And that, I mean, that is a controversial passage for, for Christians, uh, even to this day. The, they have disagreements over what it means. Uh, but I don't know, that's the only explanation that I can find that I think fits the context. Uh, real quickly, I'm going to go over the Book of Mormon. So there are thousands of changes that have been made to it over almost two centuries that has been around. So we have copies of the Book of Mormon going all the way back to the beginning. Okay, It was first published in 1828, or, or eight, I think it was 1828, uh, and we still have copies of that. So you can compare that to when it was published again in 1844, and when it was published again in the 1860s, and when it was published all the way up to... Modern times. There are changes that keep getting made uh, to it. And I don't have time to go into all some of those differences, but they affect, they affect their theology. And it, oh, the changes are always made to reflect what the current theology is and the way it's trending. Uh, for example, when it, it says about God being mm-hmm. the eternal one, they change it so it says the Son of God, being, or, or sorry, the Son of God, and then they'll eliminate the Son of. So that it's God. Right. So they, they, they made those changes and it's documentable. It's all out there. Um, and by the way, some of this is spelling and grammar mistakes that were in it. And Joseph Smith's claims that this translation came directly from God, even one letter at a time. Like as he looked through these stones, it doesn't say that he read the word. Right. When he's when he said that he was translating it, he said that he read it out loud one letter at a time to a scribe. So. How can there be mistakes in punctuation, spelling, and grammar that needs to be corrected if if it was straight from God? So, uh, other problems with it: uh, Smith plagiarized his whole chunks of it. Okay, so there are whole chapters from the Book of Isaiah and a few other places that are straight from the King James version of the Bible, including the italicized words. So, if you go open your King James Bible and you read the The front of it, the explanation of their methodology, et cetera, it says that they had to add words uh, to the translation in order to make it more clear to understand in English where it didn't change the meaning. It just helps the reader to understand. Uh, He includes those those words right in his translation. So this book was supposedly written, right, 2,000 years ago on on Native American soil uh, but yet it has word-for-word word copies, right, to the punctuation marks and the italicization of words, et cetera, from a book that was written 1,600 years later, right? Or translated, right, with the King James. So it's just uh, it's an obvious plagiarism, right there? Uh, there's also a story out there of a guy named Solomon Spaulding. He wrote fictional stories about the Native Americans. He owned a tavern. Uh, he would tell stories that he just made up. Because there was a lot of questions at this time, too, about where the Native Americans came from. Uh, there were wars that were going on between uh, the two nations. Uh, and people were curious about them. And uh, <clears throat> so Solomon made them up. But they were intentionally fictional. Uh, he died and in 1814, and all of his books were stolen. And then 14 years later, when the Book of Mormon came out. Lo and behold, chunks of those stories were included in the Book of Mormon. And there are characters such as Lehi and Nephi, who are prophets, who supposedly wrote books in the Book of Mormon that came from this other guy named Solomon Spaulding. So just just plagiarism all the way through. Something that he obviously was working on for a long time before he finally came out with it. Uh, There's also no archaeological or historical evidence to support it anywhere at all. Okay. And there are stories of huge battles where hundreds of thousands of people die. And there are stories of fortified cities that these battles occurred around. It names numerous places that we have no way of knowing where they are. So that's very different than the Bible where it says that uh, Abraham was buried at Hebron. Right? We know exactly where the grave of, of, of Abraham is right now. So you can go there and see his grave. To this day, you can go to all those different places uh, throughout the Middle East and even into places like Egypt and uh, Babylon. You can go see them. okay? And we find out that it's true. There is archaeological evidence to support that. There are historical sources that explain this outside of the Bible. It's all validated. The Book of Mormon has none of it. The Native Americans have no history of any of this stuff at all. Uh, They have a very different history that they tell of where they came from. None of it is uh, accounted for in the Book of Mormon. Uh, and they have, Mormons have archaeologists that have worked on this for a long time, and they can't find it anywhere either. So it's, it's pretty, pretty damning evidence against the Book of Mormon. Uh, yeah, so that's the Bible, very different. Last slide. So the Book of Mormon, they say, was prophesied. Uh, I'm not going to read it for time here. But in Ezekiel 37, uh, God told Ezekiel to pick up two sticks, the stick of Israel and the stick of Judah, and, or of Joseph, I mean, and he was going to bring them together. And they say that this means that the stick of Israel was the Bible and the stick of Joseph was the Book of Mormon. And that God, at some future date, is going to bring them together. Uh, and in the, the Pearl of Great Price, there's prophecies about Joseph Smith that Joseph Smith just added to the book of Genesis about this uh, where he just wrote himself into the Bible uh, <clears throat> and tried to try to say that this was prophesied when it, it's not So if you so that's Ezekiel 37 16 through 19 if you just keep reading two verses later it tells you what it means okay it's not two types of scripture. what it is it says I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. So God, because remember, the kingdom of Israel had split in half at this time, and God is now prophesying through Ezekiel that He's going to bring them together. So it's it's right there in the context. It's nothing new with Scripture. It's entirely uh, about God bringing the nation of Israel back together. So. All right, that was pretty quick, but uh, that's that. Any questions at all about answering Mormon objections? Or answering our biblical objections to Mormon theology, I guess? Anything explained. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and uh, pray. <clears throat> so God, we, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you love us and that you have saved us. And we thank you that... Uh, There are people out there that are not saved that come right to our doors. And we pray that you would help us uh, to witness to them, that you would give us a heart to reach out to them. And we pray that you would even prepare them now for when they come to our door or whenever we meet them in our workplace or wherever. Save them, Lord, and help us to remember what we need to remember as we talk with them. Bring it to our remembrance